All right, let's turn over to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 8. First Samuel chapter 8. <clears throat> we'll just read a couple of verses here. Verses 19 and 20. First Samuel 8 verse 19 is where we'll start. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for the safety you've given to us coming in. Lord, I know the weather is not that great out there. And Lord, I just thank you for giving us um, the opportunity to come in and, and uh, sing these songs that are praising you. And Lord, I pray that you be with this um, time of preaching. Lord, I pray that you fill me with your spirit. I pray that I say only what you would have me to say. And Lord, I pray that this um, truth in your word fall on receptive hearts, receptive lives. Um, Lord, that we all leave here closer to you than how we came in, especially if there's one in here who's never accepted you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that today they see their great need, how they're on their way to hell, um, and that um, unless they put their faith and trust completely in you, there is nothing um, they can do to change that, Lord. I pray that you show them that the great need they have and show them the great salvation that you offer to every everyone, Lord, and that they put their faith and trust completely in you. Lord, again, I pray that you do the request that we're asked tonight, and bless pastors, he's flying back. Um, just give him good flights, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, just a couple verses here out of, out of the, uh, for our text, um, out of 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, this is the, uh, a critical time in Israel's history. This is the transition between the period of the judges... Um, going into the monarchy, where, of course, Saul would be anointed as the first king, and the, uh, Israel now will be a monarch going forward until, of course, the time of the captivity. And again, up until this time, judges had ruled the nation for about 400 years since the time, of course, of Joshua, since the time of the conquest of Canaan. Now, the last judge is Samuel, and we see him here, of course, in our text at the time of this writing, he is getting on in years. He's old. His sons are um, nowhere near the, god, the godly man that he is, um, taking bribes and doing different, different things. And so the elders, if you, look, if you looked at four, or earlier in the chapter, um, you'll see that the, at this point the elders come to Samuel and say, look, we want a king. We want you to anoint a king to reign over us. Your sons aren't going to be suitable judges. And it didn't seem like they were willing to wait for God to um, have another successor to Samuel. Um, all throughout the period of the judges, you see God raising up another judge to judge Israel. Um, it's not like God was going to say, oh no, Samuel's dead. I don't have any more people to judge the nation. Um, God had a secession plan in place, or at least um, it, they, the Israel should have trusted in God for that. <clears throat> 
But of course, the motivation for this we saw in our in verse nineteen. Excuse me, in verse twenty, the first part of verse twenty, they wanted a king so that they could be like all the other nations that surrounded them. Of course, they would have been quite the anomaly in the in the midst of, this, of these pagan kingdoms that were around them, all ruled by kings. And here you have this people who is not really ruled by any one central government. They just have a, maybe a judge, someone that kind of presides over the, the land, teaches them God's law, but there's no central structure in place. Um, no central army in place. And so they would have been quite the anomaly, and of course Israel now wants to change that. They want to be like the other nations. If you look in verse 7, um, verse 6, you see Samuel is displeased with the request. So he takes it to the Lord, always a good thing to do when you're displeased with something. But verse 7 says, And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. So Israel maybe not would, probably wouldn't put it that way. They wouldn't say, we're rejecting God. We don't want God to be our sovereign anymore. We don't want God to be the one who rules over us. That's not how they would put it. But that is how God saw it. And that is how it was. They were rejecting God's leadership over their nation. And say, we want someone else to lead the nation. Now we know God would use different kings throughout Israel's history in, in tremendous ways. Um, we can take, of course, the most, probably the most obvious example of that would be King David. Uh, a man after God's own heart. A man so godly that God promised him the Messiah would come from his lineage. Out of his line. So we know God obviously used different kings that, that, took, that uh, lived during the time uh, of the monarchy. But this was clearly not what God wanted for the nation. God acquiesced to them. He gave them what they wanted, as he does sometimes uh, uh, for us. Sometimes he'll, he'll, he'll try to hold us back, and then when we, if we persist, he'll say, all right, I'll, I'll give you what you want. It's not going to be what's best for you, but I'll give you what you want. And this is what he is doing here with the nation of Israel, giving them a king. We're going to be focusing primarily on verse 20, or really only on verse 20. We saw, of course... Um, the people refusing to obey the voice of Samuel. Samuel is warning them, a king is going to take your, your young man. He'll see a, a strapping young man and enlist him to join the army. He'll see, he'll see a, a piece of land that he really likes and he'll just go out and take it for himself. This is not going to be for your benefit is what Samuel was trying to tell them. But they, they said, no, we want a king. And the, uh, the description they give for what a king does is what we're going to be focusing on. The latter portion of verse 20, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. This is what Israel was expecting a king to do. Now, up until this point, who had been doing this in Israel's history? God. God had laid down the law, the judging, the judgments. He was the one who was going out before them and fighting their battles. You see that um, in Deuteronomy and in Joshua, how the Lord fought the battles for Israel. But now they're wanting someone else to do it. <clears throat> and I think this gives us a good comparison for our Christian life. And we can look at these three things, who's judging us, who's going out before us, and who's fighting our battles, to determine 
who is sovereign in our life, who is reigning in our life, whether it is God or whether it is the flesh or ourself. So that's what we're going to look at. Who is judging us, who's going out before us, who's fighting our battles, that will determine. We can look at our lives and say, well, obviously, either God is in charge, God is the king in my life, he is the Lord of my life, or I want, I'm choosing something else or someone else to be king in my life. And so that's what we're going to look at here this evening. So the first point we'll jump right into is the judge, that our king may judge us. Now a judge determines what is right or wrong, what is beneficial or what is harmful to society. In our lives, if we're going to make, be making a spiritual application here, the judge who is making this call will determine how we live our lives. He'll say, well, that action is beneficial, or that action is not going to help us out. And it's very critical who is making that judgment call in your life. That will determine how you act. Now, a judge has a set of laws or guidelines that help him determine his judgment. Of course, here in the United States, we have the U.S. Constitution. We have all these different laws that are in place that a judge will go to and determine what's the right judgment here. What is the right course of action? If God is the judge of our life, it is His Word that gives us those guidelines. That sets the standard for us to fall. That is what He will give us to, uh, to, to determine whether these actions are beneficial or, or give us to, to say, this is how you are supposed to live your life. God's law is what God, as a judge, would use in our life. If flesh is the judge, what is his standard? It's fleshly desires. It's what we want. That is the standard that the flesh would use to judge our life. These two judges are diametrically opposed. They cannot co-judge. This isn't going to be like a, 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 court, a Supreme Court or these different court of appeals where you have multiple judges ruling on a decision. This is going to, there's only going to be one judge that will make this determination in your life. So let's look at several areas of our life to illustrate some of the differences between the flesh's judgments and God's judgments. Let's look First of all, at our words, Proverbs chapter 12. Let's turn over to Proverbs chapter 12. I had a real hard time narrowing down what verses to go to here with um, the judging of our words. There's just so much in the Word of God, so much, especially in the book of Proverbs, that you could go to and so you, could, you see the difference between um, fleshly words or fleshly speech or wise speech. Foolish speech or wise speech. Proverbs 12, verse 18. We'll read 18 and 19. There is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. The lip of truth shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. So you see two different types of speech um, each given to us in these two verses, and there's two sides of the coin for each of those. First of all, there's, your speech is either piercing like a sword, hurting, or it is helping. It's, it's health. It's someone that is, that is healing to someone. 
that someone wants to hear. And then, of course, truth or lying you see in verse 19 as well. So who is making the judgment for how you speak? The flesh will always want the last word. You'll always want to win the argument. Yet, of course, as has been the case in my life, and I'm sure in yours as well, we often win the argument by hurting others, by piercing with that sword. That's the fleshly judgments. That's, that's when the flesh is the judge. And saying, yep, that's, that's, that's an appropriate thing to say. Because, man, we want to win the argument. So if winning the argument is the goal, then that is a very appropriate thing to say because that's going to win the argument. We don't care that it hurts others or we, we don't care as much as winning the argument. <clears throat> and again, I'm not going to dive too much into, into the sub-point here, but the Bible often contrasts the wise and the foolish in, in speech um, in particular and, of course, in general as well. Those who follow God's judgments, the wise, and those whose ways are right in their own eyes, the foolish. So which judge is determining how you speak? Is it the flesh? Is he set up as the judge? Or is it God? Are you choosing to have the tongue of the wise that is health? So we can look at our words to determine or to help us Figure out who is the judge of our life. Who is determining which actions are appropriate for us. We can also look at how we interact with others. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 5. read a couple verses here. We'll, we'll come back to this area, um, this passage of Scripture, but we're just going to read a couple verses for right now. Verses 43 and 44. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Again, we see some more clear differences between those who would follow the flesh and those who would follow God. It is the natural response to seek vengeance, to curse them that curse us. Someone talks bad about us, well, we're not going to be talking too good about them to other people. We're going to run them down. We're going to maybe act like you know of something going on in their life that's really bad, but you, know, you don't want to get into the details because you're spiritual. And who loves an enemy? To love an enemy seems to be inviting self-harm. Like, yeah, come on in, come on in, and stab me right there, right there. You can go ahead, I'll love you for it. That's not natural at all. And who wants to do good to those that hate them? You know, when, when, when um, 
George, when 9-11 happened, and of course Bush, George Bush made the decision, going to go into, into Afghanistan and into Iraq, uh, the feeling against those countries at that time was pretty, was pretty heated. Um, you weren't really speaking too good about those, about those countries, about those terrorist organizations, about those people. We're speaking ill of them, speaking bad of them. Now again, that's on a, uh, on a national scale, and Christ is talking more on, here on a personal level. But do we do good to those that hate us? Someone just makes our life miserable at work, and we just bring them a plate of cookies. Bring them a, bring them a donut. Bring them a coffee. Might shock them quite a bit. Maybe, you know, keeping coals of fire upon their head, as, as the Bible puts it. But it's not something you want to do. You know, like, man, that guy's really been getting on my nerves. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take him out to a steak dinner. Um, it's not natural. But that's what, not necessarily taking them out to a state dinner, but God is saying you need to do good to them that hate you. That's what Christ is commanding. That is the guidelines then that Christians are given. That's God's law. So if God is the judge of our life, that is how we act. We do pray for them that despitefully use us. I remember Brother Shinoreski, um, I think it was at teen camp one time, preaching a message how, how uh, it was on the verse where Paul said, I will gladly spend and be spent for you. Willing to give of himself for others. Even though you know people are using you. Over and over they keep coming to you again. And you're like, you know what? I'll... They're despitefully using you. What's your reaction? Do you pray for them? Or do you start to get bitter and hold that grudge? Who's the judge in your life? That will determine what you do. Christ commands us to do the exact opposite of what our flesh would naturally do. So the commands given to us are what he deems as acceptable behavior. And if we act in a manner contrary to his word, that is unacceptable in the eyes of Christ will be held accountable to God for that. And again, it's just another indication to us that the flesh is the judge of our life and God is not. So that means the flesh is ruling. The flesh is the one that is in control. The flesh is the king of our life. Let's turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We'll go to the second point here. Samuel 8, verse 20. That a king may judge us and go out before us. Now this would be connected to fighting the battles. Go out before us and fight our battles. The going out before, it would be connected to that. It's talking about who would lead the army into battle. Who would be the champion of the army. We can think of Goliath would be a good example of this. He went out before the army of the Philistines. He was their champion. He was what the Philistines wanted the Israelites to focus on. You focus on that guy, you're going to lose your nerve for battle. So they wanted a big, strong, obviously Goliath being a, a giant, just a, a, a very imposing figure. That's who, generally, armies wanted to go before them. That was their champion. 
So in the spiritual life, the point here is this. What do we want people to notice or who do we want people to notice when they look at us, when they see our lives? Again, back in those times, they look at an army, you would want them to notice that's a big man right there. That's a champion. That's a fighting man. Spiritual life, when people are looking at our lives, who do they notice? What do they notice about us? What is our defining characteristic? People were asked to describe you, what would it be? Would it be a godly characteristic or would it be a fleshly one? Man, he's got that quick temper. I had that for, that was, would have been my defining characteristic for uh, a large portion of my life. If our flesh is king, man, we'll focus on those earthly things. On trying to make ourselves look better. Try to make people see us. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, there was a group of people who, that's exactly what they did. They wanted people to notice them. Luke chapter 20, verse 46. Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at feasts which devour widows' houses and for a show make long prayers. The same shall receive greater damnation. These scribes here that Christ is referring to and of course he accuses the Pharisees of doing similar things as well. They like to walk... In those long robes, those, those robes that told people who they were, or they told them their status in life. They love to have those greetings in the market. Oh, Rabbi. Oh, teacher. You're such, a, you're such a good teacher. They love those, man, going through and having somebody come up to them in the busy marketplace and, <clears throat> and then having everybody hear what this person say, all the good that this person's saying about them. That's what they lived for. Of course, that wasn't what they weren't actually following God's law. You see them devouring widows' houses. And their long prayers that they would make, it's just a show. Get up and, and spout a bunch of theological statements and run them all together. And man, it sounds good. There's nothing to it. There's no true spirit behind it. It's all a show to make themselves look better. That's who they wanted to go out before. That's what they wanted people to notice about them. Their status. Them. Themselves. Their abilities. Their spirituality. That's what they wanted people to notice. What do we want people to notice about ourselves? What do we want our defining characteristic to be when people look at us? Do we want them to notice our intellect? Do we want them to think, man, he, can, man, he, he knows all these, these fancy words. He's got a good vocabulary. Man, he's, he's strong. He can, he, can, he, can, he can pick up those uh, 16 chairs when we're moving chairs and tables across. What do we want people to notice about us? If flesh is king, we want people to notice us. A characteristic that points people to us. Not to God, to us. But if God is the king of our life, if he is sovereign, if he is reigning, we want people to be pointed to him when they see our lives. 
our defining characteristic to point people to Christ. Let's look at, back at Matthew chapter 5. We already looked at the command to love your enemies and bless them that curse you. And now we see the reason Christ gave that command. And that is to be a, to, um, be a delineation between those who follow God and those who follow flesh. Verse 45 now. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That first phrase of verse 45, again, he's just coming off the telling them to pray, them which, pray for them which despitefully use you. And now he says that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Act this way so that people can tell whose child you are. People can tell who your Father is because of how you act. We all have seen a child doing something that instantly reminds us of their mom or of their dad. I see it in, in my children, whether it be... Um, any one of my children, they'll do, do something, say something, and I'm like, that's, that's coming straight for me. And it's usually the, the bad things. The good things come from Sarah, of course. But a child does something, and instantly you know whose child they are. We do something. What action does that remind people of? Does it remind them of the devil? Or does it remind them of God? Does it remind them of the flesh? That's just a natural fleshly reaction. Or does it remind them that they are, does it show them that, they, that we are a child of God? That's exactly, that's a, that's a Christ-like action. That's a godly action to take. Who is going out before us? Who do we want to go out before us? Who do we want, what do we want people to notice about us? Do we want to point people to Christ, to our Heavenly Father? Or do we want people to notice something about us? Who is going out before us? And lastly, who is fighting our battles? Who is fighting our battles? Get back to 1 Samuel 8 here real quick. That our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Life always brings battles to us. Sometimes they're of our own making. And sometimes they're just part of living in an imperfect world. A sin-cursed earth. But regardless of how these battles come to us, how we fight these battles or respond to the hardships that we face can make or break us. They can determine whether we will live the rest of our lives for God or for ourselves. And how we respond, how we fight these battles, 
will depend on who is in control of our life. And really, sometimes which battles we face is as a result of who is in control. As a king, you would have the ability to choose whether you want to fight in that particular area or not. Say, no, I don't, I'm not going to fight that battle. I'm going to maybe get to some better ground. I'm going to, I'm going to they're, they're too strong, so I'm going to evade that, that army. I'm going to fight them what is better for me. So the king determines which battles you fight, but of course it also determines how you fight them. Let's look at some common battles that we all will face in life. And we'll see the difference in how the flesh would fight them and how God would fight these battles. First one we'll look at is grief. Again, it's a hardship, it's a battle, something we have to, to work through, something we have to fight through. Grief will come. Again, we live in a sin-cursed earth. Grief is going to come. We all have, all have experienced it at some point. We all will experience it in the future. So when grief does come, how do you fight it? Do we lash out in anger? It's a fairly natural response. Something is hurting you, so you want to lash out. And oftentimes, of course, you can't really, you can't really control it too much when you, when you decide to go that way. You just start lashing out and you, you hurt family. You hurt close friends. Lashing out in anger is, is again, a common, a common form that people use, uh, a common thing that people use to cope with grief. Some people sink into depression. A great tragedy strikes their life and they just can't handle it. They just sink into depression. What's, what's the use of living? We have this young man up in St. Mary's that committed suicide a neighbor of the Warrens. They said he was never, never interested to talk to them at all whatsoever. I don't know why he committed suicide. But we do know depression leads to that conclusion if it's allowed to remain unchecked. But that's a, form, that's a, that's a, a strategy to fight the battle of grief. Depression. Some people use a, try to use escapism when grief comes. There's various avenues that the world uses to escape the problems of life. Alcohol, drugs, video games. You can go on and on. They use that to combat grief. A very real thing. <clears throat> Again, all of these are what the flesh or the world uses to fight grief. How does God want us to fight grief? What strategy has He given to us to fight this grief? Let's turn over to Lamentations. could almost read the entire chapter, or the entire book. Just a great, especially what we're going to be looking at here, Lamentations chapter 3. Just a tremendous... Illustration of someone who is in the deepest sorrow. And some of his conclusions from that, of course, this being the prophet Jeremiah, after his nation has been conquered by Babylon and Jerusalem has been sacked. And he's left, and of course, 
Some of the most mournful statements in the Word of God come from Lamentations. Behold and see if there be any sorrow likened to my sorrow. Jeremiah is inviting people, look and see if you can find anything that compares to the sorrow that I'm going through right now. Let's read the first three verses of Lamentations, chapter 3. I am the man that hath seen affliction by the rod of his wrath, referring to God. He hath led me and brought me into darkness and not into light. Surely against me is he turned. He turneth his hand against me all the day. You see despair sinking in with Jeremiah. It's like God's hand is against me. God's hand is against our nation. And the chapter continues along those lines. Until we get into the middle of the chapter. Verse 21. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in Him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for Him. To the soul that seeketh Him, it is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. This is an incredible faith, an incredible trust that Jeremiah is displaying here. And this is what God wants us to do. This is how He wants us to fight our grief by having that trust in Him, that hope, our hope being in God. No hope in alcohol, no hope in drugs. There's no hope in anger, in depression. There's hope in the Lord. Even though he said, man, God has allowed all this stuff to take place against my nation. But I'm still going to wait for him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him. How long do we wait for God before we seek another strategy? Sometimes in the battle, it would seem like all hope was lost. And then the reinforcements would come. Or then the trap would be sprung. And the battle would be turned. But those that were in that hard time, they had to keep waiting. Until that moment came. We will go through sorrow. It's going to be inescapable. But how do we fight sorrow? We can have peace of God when we put our trust in Him. That will keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on Thee because He trusteth in Thee. Or we'll have depression, we'll have anxiety, we'll have anger lashing out. What is our strategy? Who is fighting the battle of grief? Moving quickly here, another battle that we all will face, personal slights. This falls under how we interact with others as well. But again, the choices between if God is your king or if the flesh is your king, you're going to see polar opposites. The flesh, again, wants to strike back. Someone offends you, someone slights you, you want to strike back. I don't get mad, I get even, as the old saying goes. But what does God teach us? Oh, turn the other cheek. If he, takes your clo- if he takes your coat, give him, give him a cloak or whatever it was as well. Someone bids you to go a mile, go twain. 
It's amazing. But again, we, we, we can only do this through God's strength. We're not going to be able to do this when the flesh is king, because the flesh then is trying to provide the strength for our battles. When God is king, he's the one who provides the strength. He is the one who fights the battles. You see that throughout the Bible. He is the one who's going to fight these battles for us. But we have to let him. We have to let him be king in our life. Personal slights. How do we fight those battles? Do we show grace and mercy? Servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle, patient. Another difficulty, another battle we all face, some financial hardships, financial difficulties. How do we respond when faced with these? What strategy do we use to fight this? Do we use our own wisdom? Or do we seek to go and seek after the world's wisdom to overcome these difficulties? Do we cut out maybe some giving that we've been doing? Cut out the faith promise? Or cut out the tithe? You look at the bill, you look at the expenses, you look at the income, and you're like, this can't add up. We've got to, we've got to cut out giving. We've got to cut out tithing. <coughs> Again, a very natural reaction. Or maybe you start saying, well, I've got to find some other source of income. And you're not too picky about where it comes from. Yeah, it means working on every Wednesday night for the next six months, year, two years. Yeah, it means skipping a Sunday a month because I've got to go to work. Or yeah, it means maybe driving a, a truck that delivers alcohol. What strategy do we face? What do we use when faced with financial difficulties? Do we use the world's wisdom, regardless of how it affects our family, or regardless of how it affects our walk with God? Or do we follow the Lord's instructions and make seeking God the priority in our life? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Of course, those things talking about the daily needs that we have. God has promised if we seek Him, He will fulfill our needs. He'll make sure we don't go hungry. He'll make sure we have a roof over our heads. He'll make sure we are taken care of if we trust Him, if we seek after the kingdom of God, if we seek after God's righteousness. We need not Fear the future. We'll go into in our conclusion here and, and some application, a little bit of application as we close. How do we ensure then that we are serving the right king? How do we make sure that the right king is in place in our life? Basically by what we just looked at. Especially going back to who is making the judgment call in your life. What standard are we using in our lives to determine what action is acceptable? Are we using the Word of God or are we using fleshly desires? Do we say which action will glorify God more or do we say, meh, what action do I want to do? What action feels better to me? We need to Decide in our lives, resolve in our lives, that we will use God's word as the standard for our actions. As the judge 
That's, the, that's what we're going to go by. This is our code of laws that we are going to live our lives by. God's word. Who are we lifting up in our life? Who do we want to go out before us? Do we want God? Do we want to, show, to point others to Christ? Or do we want to lift ourselves up? And when those battles do come, again, I just mentioned three, so many battles that we'll face in our life. But who is fighting those battles? Who is giving us the strategy to fight those battles? Is it the flesh? Who are we going to? How do we make sure God is the one in our life? The the king of our life? Make sure you're going to God and saying, how do you want me to fight this battle? This is a great sorrow that has overcome me. What do I do? Go to his word. Go to the law that he has given to us. Who is reigning in your life? Is it the flesh or is it God? You can tell by the judgment, who who you're trying to, to lift up, who's going out before you, and how you are fighting your battles. You can examine your life and determine who is in control, who is really the king of your life. Let's go ahead and bow our heads, close our eyes. Again, this message was definitely for Christians. But there is, God does play a different role as a judge. And that is the judge of, of your life. When you, stand, when you pass off earth, when you pass off into eternity, He is there to judge whether you are going to be innocent or guilty of breaking, your law, of breaking His law. And those who are found guilty of breaking the law of God are cast into a lake of fire. That is the judgment that he lays out. If there's anyone in here who said, I'm not sure if I died tonight, I would go to heaven. If that is you tonight, I would ask if you would please raise your hand. I would love to pray for you. Anyone in here say, I'm not sure if I died tonight, and had to stand before that judge, I don't know what he would say if, I, if he would find me innocent or guilty. Anyone at all, just raise your hand. I'd love to pray for you. See some small children? All right, Christian. Who's controlling your life? Who is deciding what action is the appropriate action to take? Who's fighting your battles? Is it the flesh or is it God? Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. Again, thank you for your word, Lord, the great warnings and and exhortations that we find in it, Lord, and the, the great passages of Scripture that you've given to us to examine our lives. And Lord, I pray that all of us examine our life, look into that perfect law of liberty and see whether we are pleasing or displeasing to you, and make the necessary actions from that, Lord. Pray that you work in lives as only you can. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll stand to our feet. Let's grab those psalm books. We're going to turn over to page 485. We'll sing, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. If God spoke to your heart tonight, please come and, and do business here on the altar. 485.
Yeah.